Live from the studio in downtown <clears throat> Uptown Charlotte. Is that a thing? Phantom Radio may contain adult-oriented content. Listener discretion is advised. Hey everybody, Phantom Radio Podcast on RadioCharlotte.com. It's Ren, and today we're going to be talking about something that I have been fascinated with ever since I was a kid. When I was younger, I would sit outside at night for hours looking up into the stars, watching meteor showers. And I still do that today. They fascinate me. Just thinking about the fact that they're space rocks. They come from outer space. They come from millions of miles away. And what they can teach us and tell us about the formation of our solar system and the possibility of how life started on Earth. I've always wanted to see one land and run over and pick it up and hold it in my hand and just be amazed at that moment. And that's such a rare thing that, that rarely ever happens. But I have held one in my hand. I actually have several in my collection. We'll talk about that as well. But I can't think of anybody else in this country, on this planet, I would rather talk to about meteorites than the person we're talking to today. He's a science writer. He's a meteorite hunter. He's like a modern-day Indiana Jones. He's an Emmy Award winner, president of Aerolite.org. And his scientific contributions through his work in many ways are more valuable than the meteorites. And they're very valuable. Some are worth more than gold. He's a co-host of the TV show Meteorite Man, which I love. I'm honored to talk to this person today, Mr. Jeff Knock. And Jeff, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. My pleasure, Ren. Thank you for that lovely intro. And as you know, but I must say to your listeners, I am a fan of your show <laughs> and have listened to numerous episodes. I so I'm that. rather thrilled to be here, and especially because I know you're a meteorite enthusiast and we, we have a lot of interests in common. So. Absolutely. So this is this is going to be a good one. I can feel it already. Right. I can feel it in the cosmic dust in my bones. I can't tell. I'm getting goosebumps now that you say that. You're <laughs> absolutely right. So just to introduce everybody to you, I know a lot of people know you for, for what you've done for so many years and the contributions you've made and discoveries you've made. But give everybody a little bit of background, how you got into this field, what uh, where the passion for meteorite collecting and hunting came from. With pleasure. I like to describe myself as, as a bit of a traveling fool, mm -hmm. and I think that I inherited that from my parents. I right. was born in New York City, but my parents were both foreign service, and mm -hmm. we moved to the UK when I was an infant. So I grew up feeling very English, but having American parents, and right. we were always traveling. Yeah. And my parents were really into... Taking the scenic route was, was my mother's favorite right, expression. Right, yeah. So we traveled all over Europe, North America, and had many adventures, but it was never a conventional thing. They always mm -hmm. wanted to stay in the little local out-of-the-way place. And my mother used to say, well, I, I really enjoy, my mother was born in Mississippi, mm -hmm. I, I really enjoy having my dinner with a nice view. A view right. was very important to her yeah. and, and quiet. And my parents were both readers, uh, they were they were amateur artists they were amateur scientists so most of the things that i care about that are the building blocks of my life mm -hmm. i feel that i i got from my parents right so in my in my teens i was very involved with the art world i love comic books and my my closest childhood friend when i was growing up and, and still but we met when we were kids is the famous fantasy and sci-fi and comic book writer neil gaiman oh wow yeah we we met when we were when we were 10 and we yeah. went all through school together we formed a band when we were teenagers nice. so i was actually just watching neil over the weekend uh -huh. he did a did a marvelous online interview with kazuo ishiguru, ishiguru the famous author the mm -hmm. nobel prize winning author mm -hmm. and it's 
it's a wild experience to see your childhood friend interviewing one of the most celebrated right. authors yeah. of our times. Right. So Neil was a, was a big influence on me, on my my early life and mm -hmm. my love of music. And then when I was a little older, I moved back to the States. I, I, went, I lived in New York for many years. I studied at New York City's School of Visual Arts, mm -hmm. which is a yeah. wonderful school that yeah. I loved. And so I have an arts degree from there. And all throughout this music and art was this deep-seated love of science and adventure. And I was utterly smitten by meteorites yeah. when I was a kid. Yeah. And you as well, I mm -hmm. believe. Absolutely. It, it was this concept that we as, as Earth-dwelling humans could have these encounters, mm -hmm. legitimate, tangible encounters, with material that had traveled immense distances right. from space and landed here on our little tiny planet against all odds. And I, I love science fiction. I'm very involved with spaceflight, as you know. I'm the president of the National Space Society, and mm -hmm. I'm a spaceflight advocate. So all of these things, sci-fi, science, adventure, history, space travel, for me, the the end product of all of that is holding a meteorite in your right. hand. Yep. It seems that all those things could be, in in a sense, wrapped up in this strangely shaped rock from outer space right. that you hold in your hand and contemplate its long journey from from eternity to here. It's so fascinating the way when I look at in my collection, I've only got 17 and I know you're like, uh, yeah, that's cute. 17. You found 17 in like an hour on dry lake beds. Well, only like on a couple of expeditions though. I tell you finding 17 total on an expedition is really good. <laughs> right. But there were a couple of times when we did really well. 17 is a very impressive collection. Do not belittle it. It um, is definitely building. You know, I'm going to keep good. it going, but I'll, I'll look at them and I'll, uh, sometimes hold them and I'll just, I'll think about the fact that these things have been around for billions of years longer than us and they will be around for billions of years after us. And to us, when we have meteorites in our collection, you know, they're a big part of our life. They stay with us for a good part of our life, but we are just such a, a small speck in their story. And that's kind of an honor to be a part of that. I that's so beautifully put, Ren. And I feel the same way. And I and I have I wrote I wrote a similar passage mm -hmm. in my in my first published book, which which was a guide to meteorite hunting. And I said, for our time on Earth, we are only caretakers right, of right. these rocks that were here before us and yeah. will be here long after us. And it's our responsibility to to shepherd them through our our portion of their extremely long journey. And I've also spoken to collectors and enthusiasts and said, make some provision for what might happen to your collection right. when you're not here yeah. anymore. Yeah, would, it, would it go to a museum? Would it go to your heirs? And it's very important that your collection is is labeled because right. I, I've this has happened to me on multiple occasions. I've been asked to go and value a collection mm -hmm. that belonged to a collector. He or she had passed away and the collector's spouse or family had said, Jeff, we've got this wonderful collection. We don't really know what they are. Mm -hmm. And right. that's actually one of the most exciting aspects of my life, not dealing with the loss, of right. course, but right. being able to help family members in distress and yeah. doing the detective work. And some I can recognize immediately right, and say, right. well, this is an Imalac from Chile. This is yeah. a Sokotaline from Russia. But there are always mystery meteorites. And some of them I still have. I still have mystery meteorites from collections 
going back over 25 years. Wow. We just could not, it was definitely a meteorite, but yeah. we could not identify it no matter how much time we spent. And so I like to preserve those as a keepsake to remind me and my colleagues and everyone that no matter how much of an expert you may think you are, mm-hmm. there are always things that you don't know right. and problems you will not be able to solve. Mm-hmm. And so I, I keep them around as a reminder that we're not meant to know everything. Right, we, exactly. We do the best we can, but some things will remain unanswered. It does exactly. not diminish the the affection or the interest that I have for these mystery pieces. They're right. not in a shoebox. Yeah, yeah. They're the... Yeah. Uh, they're the they're the odd ones. They're the odd kid. Like I was the odd kid at school. These are these are the odd rocks. That, right. They 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 don't have a place in the in the catalog, but they do have a place in the collection. They're right. they're not they're not ugly ducklings. I could tell, uh, you know, watching the the meteorite men episodes that uh, you and I shared the passion for them. When I mean, some people are in it for the money and the investment. And I get that because they are worth money. They are, they can be investment pieces. You know, there are things in meteorites that uh, you can't find here on earth. They do have a a significant value to them. Uh, But, you know, to see you, when you find a meteorite for the first time and you are the first human being to, to see it, to touch it, to expose it to the sunlight here on earth after you dig it out of the ground, you could see that excitement in your eyes, that childhood excitement every single time you do it. Uh, and that's how you know you're truly passionate about what you do. I love that. Oh, I'm so pleased. Thank you. That That is a really lovely compliment. Yeah. And and I'll, I'll tell you a story that I, I may have never told in public before, but it's mm-hmm. something that's near to my heart and to Steve Arnold, my, my co-host, mm-hmm. my very good friend, who's my co-host on Meteorite Men. And we've, we've been friends. As long as I've been doing meteorites full time, I've known Steve. Right. Steve yeah. has, has always been a, an important friend and a colleague. And in fact, when I met him, he... I'd found a few meteorites, but he had been already searching for quite a few years right. and had metal detectors and had more expertise than I did. So he was my first teacher right, in the field. Right. And, and yeah. he laughs when I tell him that. He laughs now. He laughs. He goes, I didn't know what I was doing. I was just making <laughs> it seem like I did. But when we were developing Meteorite Men for Science Channel, uh-huh. the the person who agreed to produce the show was Debbie Myers. Mm-hmm. And at the time, she was the VP of development at Science Channel. She went on, she was promoted, she became the general manager of Science Channel. And she's one of the best people I've ever worked with. Right, yeah. She really cared about educational programming and its importance. She 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 addressed the United States government on mm-hmm. Capitol Hill mm-hmm. about television. She actually mentioned our show to Congress. Oh, wow. And I, I thought as an example of right. educational television. Yeah. And that, w- that was an enormous honor for me. Wow. But she said something on, in, a, in a phone call and, and it was that whenever someone is successful in television or, or they're captivating, it, it it becomes a popular show, a hit show. Mm-hmm. It's because there's, there's uh, the, she said the really great artists have a sense of authenticity yes, and, and enthusiasm and passion. And you just can't fake that. Yes. And I, I wrote it down and I, I had that printed on, on nice paper twice and I framed it and I gave one to Steve and I put one on my desk and it sat on my desk. Now it's in my, my little cafe uh-huh. my little cafe table in my in my home yeah. but all through meteorite men that those words from debbie myers have been on my wall so that i could look at them and remember that authenticity is important and you should not try to fake things or not me not from mm-hmm. me this mm-hmm. what we what we were doing was not acting mm-hmm. right and we were really lucky 
that Eric Schatz, our executive producer, who is a multi, multi award-winning producer and at the time was with LMNO Productions mm -hmm. and is, is now with Anvil 1839 Productions in California, really got that. And he he had the courage to let us make a full-on adventure show with right. no no fake stuff, no planting things, no pretending, no redoing. And it that takes a lot of courage yeah. to send a crew. In many cases, it was two crews because Steve would have his cameraman and sound man and I'd have mine. Two multiple crews, multiple teams mm -hmm. out into the desert or the mountains or wherever we were going and film what happened rather than trying to stage it. Right, And exactly. that's why that show for me is always lives in my heart and i look back and go that was as that was the best show that we could make right. that's what we wanted to do we are so lucky that eric Schatz and ruth riven and kathy williams and the the uh, williams and the other producers and directors got that and let us do that right. and didn't try to turn it into some cheesy reality show right, it amuses right. me when i see it listed as <laughs> I know. In, in with reality shows because i go <laughs> i think of it as a science adventure show but i realize there isn't maybe a category for that yeah, but it yeah. isn't that's what that's what's when it's you know you're onto something when there isn't a category for it right exactly we were the first people ever in the history of the world or yeah. maybe the universe depending on your views <laughs> about extraterrestrial life to do a full-on television series about uh -huh. meteorites and where right. they come from and and where they found and it there yeah. still hasn't been another one there were no, there, there have been lots of other metal detector shows yeah. but we're still the one and only i know and believe me i have looked i've looked everywhere <laughs> i could possibly look and that is the only thing that's out there you may well, have maybe a couple you of should produce maybe you should produce a new show with us i would absolutely love to <laughs> i uh well the, the authenticity you can feel that in the show you know you know it's real you know it's your real life adventures out there but it's so educational you know i like i've told you uh, before we started here uh the majority of the the knowledge that i have on this topic comes from you from watching the show from uh listening to uh, your ted talks or interviews that you've done uh, and it's fascinating to me to to learn these things. And I wanted to, to share that with the audience, too, because it's so much more than just make a wish on a fallen star. You know, a meteorite uh, or a meteor shower is cool to watch, but it just goes so much deeper than that. There's so much knowledge and information in there. I just wanted to, to help educate people and share that with them. Excellent. Well, thank you. And I'm very yeah. honored that you feel that way. And that was my goal. Yeah. And when when the production company contacted Steve and me, going back quite a few years now and, and we'd already we'd done some television and I'd written mm -hmm. numerous many articles about meteorites and science and astronomy and paleontology and my yeah, other interests yeah. and they uh, we were asked by Ruth Riven who is a wonderful producer who who really devised the what they call the template the look of the show mm -hmm. she 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 was the executive producer for the pilot episode she asked me and then us Steve and me, if we were in, if we would consider doing a show about our lives and our yeah, work. Yeah. And I said, yes, I'd love to. I love doing television. My yeah. only caveat is that it's real. Right. Because right. the people in my field are smart. They're very smart. They are largely self-educated on mm -hmm. this topic, mm -hmm. meteorites and related scientific disciplines. And there are many, many, many experts in my field. And apart from just wanting to do the right thing, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, bury things and fake things it's not in my nature but right. if we did 
there are a lot of people in my field that would go, oh, you'd never find that piece there, or that right. was obviously fake for X, Y, Z reasons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I didn't, I didn't want that. Right. I, I didn't want to later be the guy who was in that fake meteorite show. Right. That would just be embarrassing. Right. I wanted to give something of value to the scientific world. And do you know, we've lost count of how many new meteorites have come to light directly as a result of the show. Oh, yeah. And by directly, I mean a person calls Arizona State University mm -hmm. or another lab. That's where we, where we did most of our science bits right. and says... Oh, I was watching Meteorite Men or I was watching the show with those two guys and my dad found a strange rock in the far on the farm in the right. 50s and I've always yeah. thought it was a meteorite and, and it turned out that it was. Yeah. So those are the direct finds. The indirect ones, which are just the finds that have been made because people watched the show or read one of my books and said, oh, well, I'm going to go try that. And they turn up something you couldn't even calculate it. It's right. got to be in the thousands. So yeah. that yeah. directly contributes to the scientific knowledge of all of the world. And that is something that's worth doing. Not to mention, I've had parents email me or call me and say, thank God for Meteorite Men. It's the only thing that would get my kids away from the video games and out into the yard and start digging. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's actually my favorite. That's my yeah. favorite thing. Oh, that's so great. So there are, and I know you've been asked this question a million times, but it's one you have to, to ask to really help to, to educate people that aren't really familiar with this. But there are three, mainly three different types of meteorites. Uh, what are they and, and what do they consist of? Yes, you are absolutely correct. So, Ren, we say there are, there are three primary groups that we describe as stone meteorites, iron meteorites, and stony irons. Mm -hmm. And stones are the most abundant. Mm -hmm. About six out of seven meteorites that have been seen to fall were stone meteorites. Mm -hmm. And they are somewhat similar to terrestrial rocks. Right. It's worth pointing out that we don't have any magical, strange elements in, mm -hmm. in meteorites that don't exist elsewhere. Right. We do have minerals mm -hmm. in meteorites that we either don't see or very rarely see in earth rocks. And we also have different mixtures of them. So that's one of the ways in which we identify meteorites. Right. And we, we can get onto that in, a, in more detail if you wish. Yes. Stone meteorites typically come from the outer layers of an asteroid or planet. So right. the, the, the surf, the crust or the mantle, and most of them contain metal. Mm -hmm. An average would be about 20%. So stone meteorites, the most abundant, typically from near, at or near the surface of celestial bodies. Iron meteorites are what people really think meteorites look like mm -hmm. so if you if you've seen armageddon which is a film that i absolutely love even mm -hmm. though the science is bonkers but who right. cares it's just great fun <laughs> when they when they show the giant scary incoming meteoroid potential oh. meteorite in space and it's all angular and dark and metallic looking right. that's what iron meteorites look like. right yeah they're, they're yeah. very dense and they typically originated we believe they originated from the once molten core of large asteroids. Right. And they're comparatively rare, although they're easier to spot. Mm -hmm. So while, while the incidence of iron meteorites falls is, is comparatively low, the incidence of fines is quite high because mm -hmm. they really stand out. They stick very well to a magnet. They have characteristics mm -hmm. that are very different from, from terrestrial rocks in large part. And then we have the mysterious stony irons, which mm -hmm. are in between. They are roughly 50-50 mixture of silicate stony materials and nickel iron. Right. 
Right. And these form on asteroids under very particular circumstances and are are by far the rarest of the of the three groups. And as you know, one of the one of the two families of the stony iron group, the palisites, mm-hmm. contain the crystal olivine, yeah. green crystal olivine, which in the gemstone world is peridot. And when those meteorites are prepared in the lab, cut and polished into slices, so they let the light shine through, you see this incredible stained glass effect of extraterrestrial peridot gemstones floating in a nickel iron matrix. It is one of the great wonders of the universe. Of They're gorgeous. When the, the first time I saw one, I, I was blown away. Just, I mean, these are space gemstones, you know? Absolutely. And you can, uh, some of them that, and some that you and Steve have found haven't been, been crushed. You know, they've, they've pretty much survived the fall and you're able to uh, facet them into gem, into uh, jewelry and things like that. It's just amazing. You are so, so right. Beautiful. Yes. Yes. You really do know your subject. Well, it was one of the great moments in the show or one of the things that one of the contributions significant contributions we were that was made i guess you could say the admire palisite mm-hmm. that we found in kansas was already well known had mm-hmm. specimens had been found going back into the 1800s but we went to the area where pieces had been found in the past with our giant metal detectors and and our the hunting strategies that we use and and as you know from watching the show we found we found multiple one piece was 223 pounds. Yeah. And that, yeah. that was the one that we pulled out with the motorcycle that right, was built yeah. for us by the American chopper guys. Yeah, yeah. That palisite is almost unique in the meteorite world in that, as you mentioned, the gemstones, the olivine crystals within it are not shocked. They have right. not been fractured. And that fracturing takes place on the parent body, not when it lands. You would think, oh, it mm-hmm. smashes into the earth and the crystals are shattered. That's actually not what happens. Mm-hmm. The, the forces required to shock those crystals are, are much greater than those we would expect right. during an impact. It's, it's probably caused by the collision of asteroids. Anyway, in, in all the palisites, well, I, all the palisites, I, sh- I should give you some statistics. So there, so there, uh, so there are over 60,000 officially known recognized meteorites in all of the history of science oh, wow. and of those 60,000 and it's in some cases there's just one in some cases there are hundreds mm-hmm. that, that that fell at the same time but out of those 60,000 there are only around 200 officially recognized palisites oh, wow. so so talk about rare wow. this this yeah. makes them one of the the rarest materials in existence and they're space gems. So what could be better? Their rarity, yeah. their scarcity makes diamonds and emeralds seem commonplace. Right. Yeah. And it goes back to what I was saying about, about the Admire Palisite and why it was so amazing to us and fascinating to scientists. In Out of all the palisites ever found, there was only one Eskel that seemed to not have shocked crystals. Wow. And, but there was only one mass of the scale ever yeah. found. Right. We found multiple masses of admire mm-hmm. with unshocked crystals. And so they gave themselves to faceting for gemstones. Mm-hmm. But that we, so here, here's a good number for you. Here's a good uh, statistical mm-hmm. run for you. 60,000 odd meteorites, only 200 palisites. Of the 200 palisites, only a scale and admire seem to be suitable for making gemstones. Mm-hmm. 
Once we have extracted the crystals from an admirer, only one out of a hundred of those crystals wow. was good enough for faceting. Wow. So yes, the carat price was was pretty high, and they're they're very they're very few available. We had some faceted, mm-hmm. and we have we have sold some to people who were thrilled to mm-hmm. to have to mm-hmm. wear a piece of outer space yeah steve had a little stud put in his ear oh, a little nice. earring made out of one which i thought <laughs> yeah. was very cool it's, just to always keep the outer space vibe with you you know when oh, you're yeah. out in the field yeah and it and it's not it's not always about money money is money it's it's whatever there is value uh, because of the rarity and what it is but just the you know for me personally and, and i think you you are the same way just the fact that this is a gemstone that does come from outer space it's been around for billions of years it's traveled millions of miles and yeah there is a comparable gemstone here on earth the peridot the august birthstone but this is from somewhere a very long ways away that is not on this not from this planet and that's just that is what fascinates me about it agreed and Ren, you've seen me in action. I don't really yeah. want to sell any meteorites. I, I want to keep all the meteorites <laughs> right. that I find. And Steve would would tease me because <laughs> Steve is a businessman. There's nothing wrong with that. No, he, no. He's, he's a he's a commercial guy yeah. and and is a dad and and a, and a husband and provides for his family and that's yeah. his business and that's fine. Yeah. But he would joke that I am his best customer <laughs> because we've been hunting partners since the 90s uh-huh, on many uh-huh. expeditions yeah. not not exclusively but I've, I've probably spent more time in the field with steve than anyone else and we'd find something marvelous and we would co-own it and steve would go oh i can't wait to get this into the lab and cut it up into slices and put it on ebay or whatever <laughs> right. and i go no no i do my indiana jones bit no it belongs in a museum so i end up <laughs> buying steve's half right, so right. that it doesn't get cut up Right. And that's actually what happened with the giant admire that yeah, we found yeah, yeah. on the on the Kansas. That's right. Meteorite. I do remember that. Yeah, yeah. We we preserved that, yeah. and that has been saved intact. Good. It was. Good. It did go on loan to the Kansas Cosmosphere for five years right. after the show, and uh, now it belongs to Aerolite Meteorites, my mm-hmm. my company, mm-hmm. and we use it as a dis- as a display piece. We take it to gem shows and educational events and not many people are able to take a 223 pound meteorite packed with space gems and let kids touch it right and that just that makes it all worth it for me just being able to do that seeing the wonder on kids faces when they they see this this giant rock that has has traveled so far and uh just happens to be 50 percent gemstones it's it's really a well moment for some kids including me I love even for adults, for the big kids, you know, I, when people come over and uh, they see the, the meteorite collection, they think, oh man, what is this? And I say, well, they're space rocks. And I pull out the one that got from, uh, from your company, uh, was a Campo del Cielo from Argentina. It's uh, about yes. 135 grams. So it's a nice little individual piece. So it hasn't fractured off of a, a larger chunk. Um, it does have the, the fusion crust all the way around the outside of the whole thing, but I'll pull it out of the case and I'll, uh, it's always amazing when I hand it to them and they hold it in their hand and they realize the density of it and how heavy it is. It's about the size of a ping pong ball, but you don't think it's as heavy as it really is and to see their eyes just open up you know and, oh my goodness this is definitely not something that you find here on earth isn't that isn't that a great moment it is it, that never gets old I know. and i've never had a kid go roll his eyes and go oh, i'm not interested in that right i've yet to find the kid who's right. not impressed 
or or dazzled when you put yeah. a meteorite in his hand. <laughs> and often there'll be a they there'll be more of a look like this adult is lying to me. This is not really a meteorite. And and then I have to say, no, actually, this is what we do, and it really yeah. is. And then you yeah. see the you see the distrust turn to wonder, right. which yeah. is wonderful and hugely entertaining. It really is. The, the features that, that a lot of these have, like the, the iron meteorites, uh, one of my favorite, and I'm going to try and pronounce this right, Munonalusta uh, yes, from uh, northern well Sweden. <laughs> it fell to the earth, they say, up to like 800,000 years ago when the Ice Age came and a big glacier covered it. And, and it's so fascinating to me. That's one of my favorite meteorites, and it's one of my favorite episodes that you guys did. My mom, uh, years ago, gave me a watch. She always knew I liked meteorites, and it has a little tiny thin slice of that meteorite uh on the face of the watch which i think is pretty cool one of my favorite things and the the pattern that you see people don't realize um you know if you slice a, an iron meteorite um and treat it in a certain way this pattern starts to to form the vidmanstaden pattern and to see it is such an amazing thing you know and to, to see people's eyes when they look at it that you know that uh, this is a, a crystallized uh, form of the nickel iron that's found in uh, meteorites. And this is not something that you find here on Earth. You're so knowledgeable. I'm really impressed. Hey, not only from can you, you pronounce Munyana Lusta, <laughs> which is one of the most difficult meteorite names, but yes, you're spot on with the pattern. And and so the Vidmanstaten pattern is something that we only see in iron meteorites and some mm-hmm. stony irons. So that is that is definitely a a telltale indicator for meteorites now not all meteorites have that pattern but the vast majority of iron meteorites do Mm -hmm. so if we if we find a mysterious iron like specimen in the field Mm -hmm. and we take it to the lab and we cut the end off and we treat it as as you mentioned we use a use a weak acid solution Mm -hmm. to expose the pattern if we see the vidmanstaten pattern it's a meteorite meteorite there's no comparable thing on earth and each iron meteorite, by and large, has its own pattern. Mm-hmm. They're not the same. Yeah. And so someone who has a collection and someone who's knowledgeable like yourself, you know what the Munyan Alusta pattern looks like. Mm-hmm. And it's different from Gibeon or Odessa right, or, right. or other well-known iron yeah. meteorites. And that is one of the most wondrous things to me. And Ren, if you, if you ever have the time, maybe we'd have the opportunity to do this uh, mm-hmm. one day in the future. But if you, you get an iron meteorite sliced in the lab and you, you polish it, mm-hmm. and then you do the acid bath yourself uh-huh. to watch the pattern emerge. Oh, that would be amazing. Is, very similar to watching a photographic print emerge right. in the tray in the dark room, and it only takes a minute or two. Yeah, yeah. it's it's really one. It's it's one of the great moments in science for me I, I love to, to see that happen. And we've definitely had meteorites from old collections mm-hmm. lost, paperwork lost. People didn't know what it was, mm-hmm. and we've had to do that. We've mm-hmm. taken a little teeny end off, which I kind of cringe. I go, oh, gosh, <laughs> I I, I to cut the end off. Oh, no. And we cut it off and we etch it. We go, oh, it's Campo or yeah, oh, it's Kenny yeah. Diablo. You can tell yeah, right, it, it's yeah. the Iron Meteorite's unique fingerprint. Reason is different or, or you know that it's it's extraterrestrial. Uh, the, help me to understand this part. I mean, we have iron here on Earth, obviously. Uh, there are, are Earth rocks that, that do have iron in them. But what makes the, the meteorite special or or to know for sure that it is a meteorite is that nickel content why is that so different from the rocks that we find here on earth correct so we have 
Well, we might use, there are three or four factors that we might use to identify an iron meteorite. The first is, if you find, as you mentioned, an individual, which is the word we use to describe a mm-hmm. whole piece mm-hmm. that has flown through the atmosphere and landed uh, as an integral mass on the surface, it typically has acquired very unusual surface characteristics as mm-hmm. a result of the surface ablating or melting right. while it's flying through the air. So so that's number one, the shape. And then the density is very high. We pick mm-hmm. it up and go, gosh, this seems like it's much more heavier than it should be. But it's no more heavy than, say, a cannonball fragment. Right. And I have many times found artillery shrapnel, bits of unexploded bombs, yeah. a few times, uh, I mean, a few times unexploded bombs, right. <laughs> usually detonated <laughs> bombs. It's it's a it's a bit freaky when you find the unexploded bomb with the metal detector. That is, uh, right. that's one of the things you have to watch <laughs> out for, especially if you're digging in areas where there's been combat in the past. Right. And then if it's a recent fall, we may see fusion crust on the exterior. Mm-hmm. That is that is the rind, as, as you know, the, the paper-thin rind that forms on the exterior of a meteorite because it's been superheated during travel. But mm-hmm. but then we get to the to the really unique parts. The Vidman-Staten pattern, as you said, we we would expect to see a Vidman-Staten pattern in almost all iron meteorites. There mm-hmm. are very, very, very few mm-hmm. that don't have a pattern. Right. And that is is because they have, in large part, extremely high nickel content. Right. But yes, you you're absolutely correct. Iron meteorites are on average about 93% iron and 7% nickel. Mm-hmm. And while we have nickel on Earth, it's rare to find pure nickel. And that that mixture, that alloy, amalgam of nickel and iron is something that's almost unique to meteorites. So the one of the real tests, one of the real indicator tests we do before we would go to the trouble of slicing a meteorite and checking it, checking to see if it had a pattern, usually we would we would take it to the lab and look for nickel. Because right. if you get that spike of three to seven percent nickel, you, it, the game's on. You, right. there, you almost never find earth rocks with that percentage of nickel. So that's a that's a really important indicator. And no, the over the counter nickel test swab kits do not work. <laughs> you have to <laughs> right. take it to a lab or to a uh, to an assay lab. And when I moved to Tucson, which Tucson, Arizona, which as you know is my home now. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I was really pleased about is there are a lot of assay labs out here because of oh, right. all, the, yeah. all the mining and prospecting that goes on. So the, some of them have closed down now. But in the, uh-huh. in the early days, we'd find something and take it down to the assay lab and pay them 30 bucks. And they'd come back and they go, nah, there's no nickel in this. And they go, ah, blast, <laughs> wasted effort. Or the guy would go, well, this is unusual. This piece of iron's got 6% nickel in it. We go, yes, it's yeah. a meteorite. <laughs> nice. So, yes, we uh, we had some – they thought we were pretty eccentric down at the assay lab. But, well, we are. but. Mm-hmm. That's uh, brightened their day a bit. They are so used to having people coming in looking for gold and silver. Oh, yeah. And yeah, yeah. they couldn't get over the fact they had these two guys that come in and get excited about nickel. Right. <laughs> <laughs> There's another type that um, that I'm very fascinated with, too, and I have, I have one or two uh, in my collection, the NWA 7454 and 4502, but it's the, the carbonaceous chondrites. And you have the, uh, oh, the little yes. chondrules in there that are a little bit older than the others that you find. Well, tell everybody about that and what that really is. With pleasure. Okay, now we're getting into the really cosmic stuff. Yeah. This is where it gets really heavy for for multiple reasons. Now, yeah. carbonaceous chondrites are, are a very old type of meteorite. And mm-hmm. when we say old, 
there, there are two reasons for that. One is carbonaceous chondrites in large part remain undifferentiated, meaning unchanged mm -hmm. since the beginning of the solar system. Wow. How does that happen? Well, as, as you know, in, in our, our uh, astronomy listeners, astronomy enthusiasts will know, in the very early days of the solar system, before we had planets and moons, there was a phenomenon called the solar disk or the solar nebula. Mm -hmm. And it, it, was a, it was a giant swirly cloud that maybe looked a bit like the Andromeda galaxy. Mm -hmm. And in that cloud formed untold billions of little tiny glassy spherical particles called yeah. chondrules. Mm -hmm. And those chondrules started to group together over time in a process called accretion where they, they tend to attract and they grow and they grow and they grow. And those chondral accretions are believed to have been the basis of all the rocky bodies in the solar system. Wow. So the inner planets and the moons that, that are made primarily of rock grew out of these chondral accretions. Now, the planets like Earth that have oceans and a molten core and weather and all these things have caused all those chondrules to disappear. But on some of the asteroids that remained out there in space all these billions of years with no atmosphere and no oceans, they still have the chondrules that formed at mm. the beginning of the solar system. So when a meteorite lands on Earth from one of those asteroids, we get to look at the relatively unchanged building blocks of the solar system. Wow. And the classification system that is used in with stone meteorites is partly, is based in part on how deformed are those chondrules. Right. So if they if they have a low number like L3, mm -hmm. it means they are not deformed much or at all. And the ones that are more deformed came from asteroids that experienced some heating or impacted mm -hmm. with other asteroids. And yeah. The chondrules were, were melted or deformed. So carbonaceous chondrites, to get back to the question, carbonaceous chondrites typically often show these relatively pristine, not deformed chondrules. But it gets much better than that. <laughs> Some carbonaceous chondrites have been found to contain water, mm -hmm. carbon, yeah. salt, yeah. even amino acids. Wow. In other words, if you were going to, if you were a supreme being and you wanted to to initiate life on a planet, you might go, well, let's see. Some of the things that I might need would be oxygen, water, carbon, amino acids. Where could I get this? Ah, yes, these handy carbonaceous chondrite meteorites. Right. So there are quite popular theories held, uh, supported by many scientists, that the materials from which life evolved may originally have been brought to Earth on meteorites. Right, right. And it gets even better than that. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Some carbonaceous chondrites, uh -huh. in particular Allende, uh -huh. which uh -huh. is a stone meteorite that fell in Chihuahua, Mexico in mm -hmm. 1969 and was investigated by Dr. Albert King, who mm -hmm. was the designer of the Lunar Receiving Lab for NASA. He was quite an intrepid scientist. When he heard there had been this fireball in Mexico, he jumped on a plane and he flew down there and he drove out to the site and he met with locals and bought and traded and he acquired all of these pieces of this meteorite that had just fallen in February of 1969. It turned out to be a very rare carbonaceous chondrite. Wow. And Dr. King then made specimens available to 
fellow researchers all over the planet, which is why Allende is regarded as the most studied meteorite in history. Yeah, but, yeah. but here's the best bit of the whole carbonaceous chondrite story. Allende has been shown to contain micro diamonds. Wow. And those micro diamonds are not from the solar disk that I mentioned that predate that that are the were, was the very beginning of our solar system huh. 4.6 or 4.7 billion years ago. These micro diamonds come from elsewhere. Oh wow. And they are believed to be all that remains of a supernova, a star that exploded perhaps as much as 12 billion years ago really? and found their way to the solar disk and became incorporated oh, wow. into the material that would one day form the asteroid that would produce the Allende meteorite in 1969. Wow. So Allende meteorites, are they contain the oldest material that any human has ever touched, so old it makes our own solar system Wow. Look like a youngster. Right. And if that doesn't <laughs> blow your mind and make you want to collect meteorites, I don't know what would. <laughs> that is so fascinating. I hadn't heard that part of it before. You know, I've heard of the 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 micro diamonds, but twelve billion years old. I mean that is that? just you can't it's hard to wrap your brain around. I know. Oh my goodness. Well, that's why we resort to science fiction. When your head right. starts to hurt too much, just go <laughs> yeah. read some good classic Robert that's Heinlein and right. it seems to put it in place somehow. And there's another one too, the uh, um, uh, Murchison, is that? Oh, yes, is that yes, right? yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, well, and interestingly, Murchison fell in the same year huh. as Allende and is, it fell in Australia and is also a carbonaceous chondrite, slightly mm-hmm. different, but mm-hmm. from the same family. And that is also a very widely studied Meteorite, and there, there's this rumor that, or this this legend that, when the Murchison meteorite fell, there was a very strong aroma in in the air, a right. vinegar like aroma. Interesting, <laughs> and that it was perhaps the, the amino acids or carbon compounds uh-huh. or who knows what on yeah. on the meteorite that yeah. that perhaps burned or perhaps when pieces hit the ground and cracked open, they they released the smell. And it reminds me of an incredible thing that happened to me with Gene Cernan uh-huh. of Apollo 17, the, the NASA astronaut who was yeah. the last human on the moon right. thus far. Hopefully that won't be true for right, much longer. Right, but, right. but I knew Gene a bit and I through my spaceflight work and I, mm-hmm. I had the pleasure of, of chatting with him numerous times. And, and once he was here in Tucson at an event. And so I took a lunar meteorite with me and... I had it in, it was a slice. It's very Mm -hmm. delicate, very, very valuable slice of a lunar meteorite. I should clarify, this was not a NASA return sample. It is illegal to own that. This is a a piece of the moon that was blasted off by another meteorite and landed here on Earth and was identified as a moon rock. So I took this to Gene. I go... Gene, I've got some, I have something to show you. And he goes, he goes, what, what, what? He goes, oh, Jeff's brought another rock to show me. And I go, no, no, this is different. <laughs> this is something you haven't seen for a while. Right. And he says, do tell. So I gave him, it was, it was in a sealed uh, plastic membrane box. And I said, this, Gene, is piece of the moon. And he opened it up and he rubbed it and he smelled it. He really vigorously smelled. Huh. Big inhale. And I asked him why he did that. And he said, uh, well, when we returned from moon rock collecting mm-hmm. and we sealed up the lunar module and we left the moon and we went back to rendezvous with the command module, mm-hmm. the the airspace really smelled. 
oh, from wow. the moon rocks. And apparently there was matter in the moon rocks that reacted with the atmosphere of the lunar module and created, as he said, a kind of a musty vinegar-like smell. Interesting. Okay. So he wanted to see if my moon rock still had that smell, which right. it did not because it yeah, had been yeah. burned in the atmosphere and then sat in the Sahara Desert for a thousand years. But <laughs> I was I was pretty jazzed that Gene Cernan smelled my moon rock. That, that is so quite, funny. quite a good bumper sticker. Wow. I never, I never knew that about that. That's fascinating. And same way with uh, the Martian meteorites. So I know that uh, the lunar moon rocks that they did bring back from the the NASA missions, uh, it is illegal to to own that. And I've heard that anybody that that has been given a a piece or a sample as a gift, it they can't keep it in their home. It has to be on display in a museum or a school or something like that. You can't actually physically own one. So this is the only way to really be able to own a piece of the moon or a piece of Mars is through these these meteorites. Correct. And that that leads to a very interesting topic, actually, mm-hmm. Ren. I, so you have a lunar meteorite. Mm-hmm. You you know that it doesn't look like other meteorites, right? And right. So a, a large a large part of lunar meteorites are they consist in primarily or in large part of volcanic rock, mm-hmm. and Martian meteorites that we have are are in are very greatly made up from volcanic components. So most of them are essentially cooled lava from Mars Mm -hmm. that have landed on Earth. So the normal tests that we do on meteorites don't work on lunar and Martians for the the most part. And very, very, very valuable material. So has sometimes sold for $1,000 per gram or more because of its rarity. So how do you know it's the real thing? Well, we do because either we've done the lab work ourselves. We've, mm-hmm. we've taken a piece to one of the few accredited labs in the world that has the equipment and know-how to right. say, yes, this is definitely a moon rock, or we've acquired it from an impeccable source. Mm-hmm. And this is, a, this is a really fascinating part of the meteorite collecting world. Like, like any high-value collectible, you have to trust your provider. Right. If right. I was going to buy a fossil or uh, a piece of original artwork or some other collectible, you rely in large part on the reputation and the knowledge of your provider. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so with the increase in popularity of meteorite collecting, we've seen many, many more people get in, get join the market and and that's good. That's fine. Mm -hmm. That's commerce. That's free enterprise. And a lot of people do this as a, as a hobby business, they're, right. they're meteorite collectors and they do a bit of buying and dealing on the side to bolster their collections. Mm-hmm. And there, there are a few owner operators, one, one man shop or, or small companies where the, the owner's wife helps him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we, we know the players in, yeah. in this field and this, the relationship is built up over years and years of trust and expertise. Right. So there are certain people where if they come to me and they go, Jeff, I've got a new moon rock and the work was done by this scientist. Right. We know that it's legit. Yeah, yeah. And unless you have the ability to get your specimen tested, you really need to trust your source. Right. And I have seen in the marketplace amazing things Mm -hmm. so for example i'm not bashing ebay i use ebay i'm just telling a true story Mm -hmm. 
I I recently went on eBay. I was looking for something else, and it so happened that a friend of mine had a meteorite, and I wanted to see how it was doing. So you know, when you log on to eBay, it shows you sometimes photos of you may also be interested in right, yeah, yeah, <laughs> CDs by this band. So they do that to me with meteorites because I look yeah. at meteorites. So so there were eight photos that were presented to me of of me- meteorites that were currently on auction at eBay. Five of them were fakes. Oh, wow. Five out of the eight. Yeah, yeah. And it's this is something that we've seen in the marketplace a lot. And it's it's partly because meteorite men put the concept of meteorite collecting in front of the world. It right. had been a yeah. niche yeah. field, both in science and collecting prior to the show. But the show aired on, on all seven continents. Yeah. I corresponded with someone who showed it at McMurdo Station in, in Antarctica. Oh, wow. That, that made my day because we were on networks in the other six continents. That's yeah. not such a big deal. But to get on the air in Antarctica, that's not easy. So, right, right. So a lot of people have acquired a little bit of knowledge or it's wishful thinking and they go out and they find strange rocks and they go, oh, look, I've got all these meteorites. And we just see so so much of this. And mm-hmm. and it's not necessarily that people are, are, are trying to work a con. Mm-hmm. They're just convinced they found something, but they don't have the knowledge to verify right. it. And that happens probably the most with lunars and Martians because right. they are the most difficult to recognize. Mm-hmm. I've had people send me photographs that were taken by one of the Mars rovers of a mm-hmm. rock on the surface of Mars mm-hmm. with a rock that he found. Right, And right. he says, look, it matches <laughs> the rock, the picture that the rover took. And I go, well, it's that's not actually enough <laughs> that right. it looks like a rock on Mars. Right, but yeah. you would you would be amazed at the volume of inquiries that we get. Oh, I can imagine. I mean, in the tens oh, of thousands wow. over wow. the years, May, maybe wow. more than that. And every now and then a real meteorite does come along and mm-hmm. it, it's mm-hmm. it's very exciting when it happens. Yeah. And, and some of those have gone to museums and some have yeah. contributed new information to right. to science. But this is this is what I've tried to do with the business, with, with my company, Aerolite mm-hmm. Meteorites, as you know. I, I started it many years ago. I've, I've been doing... I've been working with meteorites for over 25 years. And when I was a little boy, I so yearned to have a meteorite of my own, just Mm -hmm. a small one. It didn't have to be an enormous piece. I just wanted to have this experience of having a piece of outer space on my bedside table so I could gaze upon it and wonder as I went to sleep. And it wasn't possible when I was a little boy. There Mm -hmm. was no network of collectors then. Mm -hmm. It was pre-internet and the comparatively few meteorite specimens known were in large part in museum and university collections. So I wanted to change that. I didn't want there to be a kid in 2021 who yearned of having a meteorite and couldn't have one. I wanted everyone to be able to have one. And so we, we cater for everyone from, from the, from the little boy or little girl who has $10 and wants a little piece to have to the top museums in the world. I mean, we've, we've worked with, with, I think every major museum in the world that has a meteorite collection, Vienna, New York, DC, London, California, you name it, because we love doing it. The, the opportunity to connect with and support our colleagues in academia is of paramount importance to me. These people are my friends. Yeah. They're, they're PhDs. They're scientific experts. I'm a field guy. I've got metal detectors in a rock hammer. <laughs> right. I couldn't do what they do. Yeah. It's not, I don't have the expertise. And, and academics usually don't have the available time that's required to right. go on long expeditions. They're exceptions, right. of course, but the, 
the an academic going on say a trip to antarctica with the national science foundation would would be would be an occasional thing right for us it's 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 all the time and so this marvelous symbiosis grows where we find specimens or people bring us pieces that they think might be and something new and unusual turns up and of course we donate a piece to right one of the labs, one of the universities, one of the museums, right. because they're going to do the work on it. They're going to write it up and go, oh my gosh, yeah. we've never seen this before in a meteorite. That's what we all want yeah. is to contribute to the science. Yeah. And so it is, it's something I care deeply about is preserving this happy, sharing, productive relationship between academic pursuits and commercial mm -hmm. interests. And right. you've right. seen it not work in paleontology not work at all right there there have been there, there a lot of bad things have happened in paleontology in this country because of elitism right because of of commercial interests damaging allegedly damaging fossil sites and collecting perhaps in a way that's not the best and right. then you have elitists in academia say we don't think anybody should be able to collect fossils right right and the reality is it's somewhere in the middle yeah uh, amateurs make important contributions all the time they should work with and respect their colleagues in academia as we do. And I encourage everyone, everyone who's listening to this, who, who gets interested in this, if you go meteorite hunting, you have a collection, remember that we wouldn't be where we are without the scientists. We yeah. wouldn't understand the significance of these meteorites without the lifetimes of study and dedication that have gone on in labs and universities and libraries. And that's why we're friends. And that's why we work together because everybody benefits. I love that. And I mean, it's, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, we all ask the question, who are we, where are we from? What's our purpose here? And it's through a lot of this research and, and the media rights that come to earth. You never know when a new one's going to come to earth that unlocks something that we don't know before that helps us understand ourselves a little bit better, where we're from more about the planet or the solar system or space. You just never know. And these things have to be in place. The, the scientific community, works hard and has made some fascinating discoveries and you just never know when the next one's going to come along. That's why it's so important. Indeed. You're so right. And this, you, you said something very profound, which resonates with me because this work that I do, the field work and, and educating people about meteorites and identification and buying, selling and trading and writing books and making television shows and films, mm -hmm. it makes me feel in some way connected with the mechanisms of the right. universe and absolutely we, we don't understand the big picture of yeah. how everything was formed whether your your views are religious or or science based we we don't we don't know the answers to the mm -hmm. to the really great questions but being engaged in a scientific pursuit that combines travel and adventure and and interacting with people from other cultures and societies it makes me feel part of it in, in a small way like right. i'm one of the cogs yeah. that helps get <laughs> get the material from <laughs> from that ancient supernova to the solar nebula to the asteroids to the meteorite that landed on earth that was collected by dr king of which we now have pieces right it, it's a it's a journey with measurable steps and there there's a chain of custody some of it's celestial and some of it's human but we're we're aware of it you can see the chain go all the way yeah. back to the very early days of the universe and that that connection that feeling of being part of the bigger picture is very satisfying you're a modern day indiana jones 
You really are. Oh, thank you. You really oh, I are. Must tell, yeah. I must tell you a funny story. Yeah. So a year before last, I was in, in Morocco. I was uh, on an expedition into the Sahara looking for, looking for meteorites. And Steve Arnold from Meteorite Men was there ahead of me. And he had or he was organizing the Jeeps and some supplies. And for whatever reason, I joined him a few days later. Usually Steve was the one who was late to the expedition. <laughs> right. I had to go to the UK first. That's what it was. I had to right. stop in London on the way to Marrakech. So... So we were emailing and he said, yeah, yeah, when you get to Marrakech, just look for the guy with the sign. It'll, uh, it'll be obvious. And I go, what? what? And he goes, yeah, I'll just send a guy to pick you up in a, in a truck. He'll have a sign. It'll be obvious. So, okay. So I'm expecting it'll just be a sign that says Jeff or Mr. Notkin. So I, I get off the plane and walk out into the beautiful Moroccan sunshine. And there's, there's a young Moroccan man standing there holding a sign that says Dr. Jones. <laughs> so, because, you know, I only, like he says in Raiders, I only need enough to get to Marrakech. It's the only place he can sell it. Right. So, so, I, so I go up to the young man and I go, hi, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm Jeff. I'm Steve Trendy. He goes, oh, Dr. Jones, welcome to Marrakech. And the beautiful part was he'd never seen Raiders of the Lost Ark and he didn't oh, realize wow. that it was a joke. Yeah, so yeah. he called me Dr. Jones for the whole time, which, oh, was, I mean, who wouldn't go along with that? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Oh, I love that. There's so many that are found in that that area out there. And there are, I know, you know, of course, learning from you that in, in deserts, it's more of a dry environment. So the, the elements don't have a chance to break the meteorites down. And so they may be there for tens of thousands of years or, or longer. So it's a little easier to find. But there are other places on the earth, like Kansas seems to be a really big hot spot in the United States. But Kansas really isn't a desert, from what I can tell. Why Why Kansas? I'm sure they're it, all over the something? 50 states. I've had some really marvelous exchanges with people where I'm, I'm speaking at a university or mm-hmm. what, an astronomy group or whatever it might be, and we, we get to the Q&A, and people will go, well, where's the place on Earth where you found the most meteorites? Right. Expecting, I suppose, that it would be. I don't know, Texas or the Sahara or whatever. And I say Kansas and people go, what? And I go, yeah, not in terms of number, but in terms of tonnage. Right. Yeah. We found more and bigger meteorites in Kansas than anywhere else. And so first of all, I must, I must clarify something. And that is Mm -hmm. to the best of everyone's knowledge, Meteorites fall randomly over the entire surface of the earth. Right. There right. are not hot spots where more meteorites right. land. It's that the conditions for preservation and recovery vary. So if you think about it, most meteorites actually land in the ocean. Yeah. And conditions for recovery in the ocean are very poor <laughs> because the ocean is salt water and meteorites don't like water, especially salt water. So we're not likely to find meteorites that have fallen into the ocean. So right off the top, we go, okay, the majority of all meteorites over a certain size that fall across the earth are lost. Yeah. yeah. They go into the oceans. Here's the story with Kansas. Both of the the sites where we found massive meteorites, and by that I mean in excess of 100 or 200 pounds, were known sites in Kansas, where meteorites had been found in the 1800s. Right. Now, Kansas has, especially in central Kansas, this was uh, in one, one was in Kiowa County, west of Wichita, and the other was in northeast, northeastern Kansas. Very rich farming soil, farming economy. The, the land was, was being actively farmed in the 1800s using plows that were pulled by animals, pre, pre-industrial era, of course. And 
there are there are comparatively few indigenous rocks in the Kansas soil. So it's mm-hmm. mostly plant matter. It's mostly good thick farming dirt. Yeah. You don't hit a lot of rocks when you're plowing. Right. And in that era, in the 1800s, in any pre-mechanized civilization, plow blades are a valuable commodity. These have been likely made by hand right. in a, a, at an, an anvil by a blacksmith. Mm-hmm. You don't want to break a plow blade. So right. there is some evidence records that a common practice when a when the plow struck a big stone in the field was to take the time to stop and excavate it and pull it out and throw it off to the side. Right, right. And so this process going on over hundreds of years has produced some meteorites. And we were able to, well, it was, it was quite known. In, if you look in the literature, it's quite known mm-hmm. where some of these meteorites were found. Mm-hmm. So Steve believed that there were possibly larger meteorites deeply buried there that had been beyond the range of conventional metal detectors. Right. So as, as a guy who, who likes to think big, Steve had a giant metal detector constructed in Germany. Right. And we yeah. started dragging it around with an ATV and the rest is history. So I we, love it. <laughs> we, we, it it's, it's a combination of revisiting places mm-hmm. that are known sites yeah. and then upping the ante with the technology. And you, you've seen Meteorite Men. We... We used some detectors that were the size of four pool tables right, together yeah. and had to yeah. be pulled by a truck. And so the bigger your detector, the deeper into the ground it can see. And so generations of meteorite hunters had walked right over those giant pieces that we found, right. but their detectors <laughs> could not see far enough to register them. So it, it, it is just one of those strange things that Kansas happens to have produced some of the great meteorite finds for us or anyone Mm -hmm. and those comparable meteorites are are elsewhere buried somewhere we may just never find them we we don't know where to look it's it really goes back to to a lady who lived on in in the strewn field in the fall zone she found on the surface small rocks that she believed to be meteorites and and as as a, a young girl she had seen an exhibition uh, I believe at the World's Fair in Chicago. So she'd actually seen some meteorites when she was a, when she was a young woman, and she remembered what they looked like. And she spent years writing to museums and mineral dealers, saying, oh, "I found these meteorites on my land in Kansas," and everybody thought that she was crazy. <laughs> right. But eventually, a, a scientist came out to look, and she was right, and she had wow. collected many pieces. And so they ended up selling. Her and her husband ended up selling these pieces and finding more and were able to buy the lands that they were leasing. So they were really the first meteorite hunting uh, and commercial business family in Kansas. So you could say that's where it all started for me. Oh, I love it. In Arizona, where you live, there's a lot of meteorites uh, that have been found out that way. And there's an area there that I've always loved. I want to visit so badly and it's on my list. Hopefully I'll get a chance to do that uh, one day, but uh, there's a huge meteor crater out there in Arizona. It's called, well, it's called Meteor Crater. But I remember as a kid watching a couple of times a documentary about Gene Shoemaker uh, and the NASA astronauts that used to train in that crater. And he uh, was a geologist and was studying that area. And I guess was it him that 
realized that it was a meteor crater or I mean, am I right at that? Yes. Well, in large part. And so it absolutely is one of the geological wonders of the world. And I, I've, I've had a love affair with meteor crater. It's also known as Barringer crater yeah. for, for, for many, 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 many years. And it's believed to be about 50,000 years old. Wow. It is easily and by far and away the best preserved large meteorite crater right. on on earth and it's it's about 560 feet deep and the 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 edge the edges of the crater are so well defined yeah. it's an astonishing experience to to stand there on the rim and look into it and i highly highly recommend it so it is it is a privately owned mm-hmm. structure yeah. and it's owned by the descendants of Daniel Moreau Barringer, who was a mining mm-hmm. engineer, who was one of the godfathers of meteorite science and, and impact science. He visited the crater in the 19th century, and he was convinced that it was a meteorite crater. Mm-hmm. And the the authorities at the time thought he was crazy, and they, mm-hmm. they, were, they said it was either a volcano or some sort of steam blowout. But but Barringer w- was convinced, and he he founded a mining company. He mm-hmm. thought that there was a giant meteorite buried at the bottom of the crater. Right. We, yeah. we now know that's not the case. Right. But he was a visionary. We didn't know anything about craters and meteorite science then. Now it's easy to go, oh, of course, there's no crater at the bottom. I mean, there's no giant meteorite at the bottom because it's the explosion of the meteorite that hit, hitting the ground that makes the crater. But we didn't right. know that then. Yeah. And so Barringer was absolutely correct on on everything else. And sadly for him... It was not a success, successful financial venture, but right. fortunately for his family, they, it, the crater was preserved uh, mm-hmm. as a result of, of his interest and his family's interest. And it's open to the public and there's, there's a modest entry fee. I, I should say, as, as I always do, because we're, I'm, we're, we're friends with the, with the company that manages it, mm-hmm. you're not allowed to collect meteorites. There. Right. It, it, yeah. is, it is a protected site, yeah. but it is so worth going. I've had the the great privilege of filming there many times. I filmed with NASA, mm-hmm. who did an episode of um, a, a BBC show there and several episodes of my science show, STEM journals. Mm-hmm. STEM, yeah. So we didn't do any any meteorite collecting. It, it was It's quite funny because obviously I'm known as a meteorite collector and hunter and for meteorite men. And so the staff there were very supportive and friendly but I did have to have someone with me all the time. I was monitored when I was there and I said, I'm not, I don't have a detector. I'm not picking up anything. I'm not doing any digging. We're just filming a science episode, but I did still have a kind of a chaperone with me just to make sure that uh, I I, (laughs) I didn't remove anything (laughs) that I shouldn't remove. And and so I I was very good, but I, yeah, it's, it's, it's an amazing, it is an amazing place. It is so, it's so worth visiting. And once when we were filming STEM journals, I was lucky enough to go down onto the floor of the oh, crater. Wow. Yeah. Only one time. Wow. But that that is an astonishing experience to stand in the middle of the crater and do a 360 and oh, see wow. these walls all yeah. the way around you. It's so, been so such a recommended. fascinating uh, crater, just the whole thing. And that's that's really where at a younger age I started learning more about it. And that's on my my list. You know, I have a a, a wish list of of specific meteorites or or shapes or that I want to collect eventually. And the the Canyon Diablo meteorite is one that's on the top of my list because of that 
uh, fascination as a kid with with meteor crater so one oh, well, day I, that will i happen. can help you with that <laughs> you you just you just get in touch with me when you're ready we'll find you a nice one so Aerolite. we, we have, and i i should say also Aerolite. we're we're very scrupulous about the the origin and the legality of right. meteorites and something that collectors should know is that you can't just go to any country and find a meteorite and keep it Right, different countries yeah. have different regulations. Yeah. Australia and Canada have, have quite strict regulations. We've we've worked happily with governments of both. So you just have to follow regulations. And mm-hmm. it is not, you're not allowed to go to Meteor Crater and collect specimens. Right. And so right. when when we have carried pieces, they've come from, from old collections. There used to be some, there were some prospectors who, who worked there in the 40s and 50s when it was still legal to collect. And so mm-hmm. it, it, in the same way that we were talking earlier about provenance and, and lunars and martians and, mm-hmm. and knowing without a shadow of a doubt that you're buying from a reputable source you you should also be aware of, of the legalities and and we we have export papers for all the meteorites that we we carry that right. originated in countries that have restrictions yeah. you don't want somebody to show up at your door and repossess a meteorite that, right. that, that you got yeah. uh without without going the right following the right procedure. So yeah. in, in the same way that we work very closely with, with academia to make sure that things are, are properly identified and, and represented in museums, so do we work with governments and export agencies to make sure yeah. that, that yeah. everything has is properly documented and, and isn't being smuggled out of the country right. in somebody's suitcase, which definitely happens. <laughs> oh, I'm uh, sure. But, but yeah. not, not with us. With the, the Campo piece that I got from you, uh, it came with all kinds of information. And I know uh, being from Argentina, they've kind of closed the borders or restricted that a lot, exporting it from the country. So they're a little bit harder to get now than they were. But I was impressed with uh, when it came, uh, there was just so much information in there talking about what it is, where it's from. I mean, just all this information about the, the piece itself. It's oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate that compliment very mm-hmm. much. When, when I... When I decided to get involved in the commercial side of the meteorite world, I, I did it for two reasons. The first mm-hmm. was I just wanted to generate income so we could go on more expeditions. Right. Expeditions are expensive. Right, yeah. And when you're you're flying to to Morocco or Australia or wherever we might be going and renting vehicles and buying equipment and hotels and guides and whatever paperwork permits, all the things you might need. It's, it's especially if you're taking multiple people, yeah. it's an expensive undertaking. So, so Aerolite Meteorites was originally founded many years ago as, as a, as a project that to buy and sell meteorites, to generate income for, to fund expeditions at w- which we continue to do. And it grew from there and now as you know we've we've published numerous books and magazines uh, one monograph about meteorites uh, museum catalog we're very involved on the production side of the meteorite men television show and subsequent shows we recently did a an hour and a quarter documentary about meteorite identification which can be seen on vimeo this is mm-hmm. because we get so many requests people say oh, i think i found a meteorite how can i tell and right. sometimes the person's in another country and they don't want to ship a heavy rock to us so i wanted to produce a film that shows examples of everything this is what you're looking for this is what stone looks like on the outside and the inside this is here chondrules many of the things we talked about the surface features Mm -hmm. attraction to magnet all these things so so that was part of it but the other was i i saw this this marvelous field this fascinating small niche scientific discipline where amateurs frequently make very important contributions and 
there was a lack of of easily accessible and relevant information. So people would go, okay, it's a meteorite. How do you know it's a meteorite? What's it made of? When right. was it found? Right. And collectors should have this information. So yeah. I I wanted to to improve the the visibility of the field in a in a in an in the sense of ed- of sharing information, yeah. both graphically and in words. Mm-hmm. And so I I start I designed specimen cards that have useful data and are easy to read. And then also produced a series of information sheets like the one about Campo del Cielo that, mm-hmm. that you received. Because that's an, that's an iron. What happens yeah. to iron? If you leave iron on a shelf for 10 years, what happens? It oxidizes. Right. If, if you live in North Carolina, it might <laughs> rust a bit because it's, it's humid. So, <laughs> yeah. But that does, that's easily preventable it, with a little bit of care. Right. So, treatments of oil. Yeah. Don't take it in the shower with you, but <laughs> you, can, you can handle it. So I wanted to share this. I wanted to make this information that I have collected largely through empirical adventures and research and experience available to anyone who is interested. It was a, almost a secretive field, this yeah, uh, yeah. information, these tricks and techniques of meteorite hunting and, and preserving and cleaning meteorites. It was, it was, it was quite private. And I, yeah. I actually got, I got told off by a few people in the mm-hmm. field for sharing information. No. Which I, I I think it should be shared. Absolutely. If, if you keep it as a little secret niche thing, mm-hmm. it may be fun for you for a few years, but we're mm-hmm. never going to discover all of the important stuff that's out there. Exactly. Yeah. In the same way that there are citizen scientists working on biology and ecological mm-hmm. projects, and in the same way that you can volunteer your time or your computer to become part of an astronomical network looking for asteroids or 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 looking for radio signals from outer space, you can be part of a bigger thing mm-hmm. if you're interested. And right. that democratization of knowledge and experience is is important to me. I, I don't think it should yeah. be locked up for just a few to have. Right. Here in North Carolina, we can uh, see the meteor showers. I don't know if any have really been found here. I haven't found any information on that. I have seen... Uh, a green shooting star meteorite coming down in the city here where I live. And it looks like it almost came down between the buildings into a park, which is about, it's kind of small. It's about two city blocks. Um, but this was this past July. And normally those from what I'm, I've heard are probably the size of a grain of rice. They're very small. The ones that you see, uh, in the meteor showers are the little single shooting stars like that. But, I have still, every time I go through that park and I do two or three times a week, every time I walk through, I'm constantly looking at the ground, just, just looking at every single rock that I've passed by just in case whatever that was, uh, made it to the earth. So I never, never know. It may be something out there it may have burned up, but it was kind of cool to see it fall that low. Yes. Well, you're very fortunate mm-hmm. to have seen that. I have, I have this very odd experience where a, a large part of my life has been, listening to reports from people who saw amazing fireballs (laughs) that I didn't see. And we are then trying to track where meteorites made it to the ground. If at all, it's, it's not, it's not a given, even a very large fireball. It's not, it doesn't definitely mean they're going to be meteorites on the ground. And if they are, they might've fallen in the water, in the ocean, in the lake, in a very muddy, inaccessible area or 
as you may remember from the Meteorite Men Dugway episode in the middle of a top secret military yes. installation where <laughs> yeah. we can't get them, try as we try as we may. So so let me let me backtrack just for a minute. So I, yeah. I want to tell you that there are 30 known meteorites from North Carolina. Really? Of which one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine are witnessed falls. Oh wow. Going back to the oldest one was uh 1849. That was Monroe, North Carolina. Uh-huh. That was a right. stone. Not far away. So now okay, we're gonna do a little research here. I'm gonna see what is the best option for you for meteorite hunting in North Carolina. So so I'm checking I'm checking the database of all known of all known mm-hmm. meteorites. Wow now this is interesting. Do you know I don't know how this would be pronounced. U W H A R R I E you, you Harry? You worry? You worry. You worry. Uh, okay. I'm not familiar, but it's a right. guess. Okay. You worry? I'll look that up. I don't know where that is. Okay. But in 1930, an iron meteorite was found there weighing almost 73 kilograms. Oh, wow. So so that's, that's pretty big. Wow. And usually, there is not just one big meteorite. Right. It yeah. has happened, yeah. but it's not average. Yeah. So... That would be an area that might be worth researching and going and searching with metal detectors. Now you are at a disadvantage in North Carolina, of course, because mm-hmm. it's it's quite humid, right? And yeah. so meteorites will decay more quickly than they would elsewhere. But a, a meteorite that was found in 1930, if there's any more, that's still going to be there. It takes right. it takes a while for for iron to to decompose. Right. And the story of the park illustrates a very interesting and and puzzling phenomenon Mm -hmm. when we see as you did a large meteor or or a fireball arcing over us in the night sky it it creates this this super powerful illusion usually an illusion that it's very close or that it's closer than it seems to be and and that's because it's very bright in the night sky of course It, it becomes the focus of our, of our attention but also there's usually nothing between us and the fireball that can really give us a sense of distance right it's not like yeah. when you're on the ground if you're on the highway and you go oh that truck looks like it's about a mile away because i can mm-hmm. see the telegraph poles and see other vehicles it's difficult to we don't know how big the fireball is usually i mean we, we can tell if it's giant or teeny but something that happens frequently is the the fireball that we see in the night sky is much further away than we think it is. Right. And you, I'm sure we've all had this experience where you see a shooting star and it goes right to the horizon. You go, gosh, it looks like it landed just over there, just behind the train station. Right. And so what you're seeing, in fact, there mm-hmm. is the meteor arcing over the horizon. Right. So when it's when it's in the in the period of flight where it's still burning, it's still mm-hmm. still exuding light and ablating. It is typically miles up right. in, in the atmosphere, yeah. and the last period is called dark flight when it mm-hmm. it slows down. The atmosphere gets becomes more dense. The incoming potential meteorite slows down. It stops ablating. The the flame like phenomenon, which is the word meteor, so meteor is the shooting star part, goes right. out, and then it just falls. It falls without without any anything to right with right. cool dark flight we're not we're not able to see it unless it's right on top of you so even after the fireball has gone out typically it takes three to five minutes for the pieces to fall so they're right. going to keep traveling to some distance in, in yeah. the way they were going and that's why we often find 
meteorites in little clusters. So the what, the potential meteor, meteorite, that we call a meteoroid is the mm-hmm. word. So meteor is the shooting star. Meteorite is anything that lands on Earth. Meteoroid is the mass itself. Yeah. That's the, the solid mass. So if that explodes, as, as they often do, sometimes multiple times, you then get a shower of debris, right. of particles. Right. And the, the bigger pieces will go further, as you know. The smaller mm-hmm. ones will land a little bit sooner because due, due to inertia. The bigger right. ones got a little bit more oomph and they'll go a bit further. Right. So we th- there's this really interesting phenomenon that I've seen with meteorite hunting. So frequently we've been in areas with with sloped hills and we say, okay, the the meteorite, the incoming meteoroid, the fireball traveled from south to north. And there are these there are these pretty steeply sloped hills. And so any meteorites that made it to Earth are going to be on the southern facing hillsides, right? Uh-huh. Because because that's the direction the meteorites were coming from. So they're going to fall on this side of the hill. Wrong. We find them on both sides of the hill because they've had this this parabolic type descent. Right. And by the time yeah. they hit the ground, they're coming almost straight down, not traveling right. uh, horizontal to the Earth's surface anymore. That makes and sense. So yeah. they really can be anywhere, even on the roofs. We found meteorites on the roof of a building in... <laughs> in um, Chicago, little meteorites on on uh, following the the famous Park Forest fall of two thousand and three on the flat roof of a building wow. were little tiny meteorites up there. I did see a, a small video uh, somewhere of a guy that would um, go around and ask people if he could use a metal detector in their, uh, I guess where the the, the gutters drain out uh, beside their house. That sometimes he can find little small micrometeorites there that have hit the house and gone down through the drain. And when it rains, it kind of pushes them down, you know, beside the house. And he's found some that way, which I thought was fascinating. Yes, absolutely. That That is a real thing. Yeah. But there are a lot of other things in your gutter also. Right. It's <laughs> stick yeah. to a magnet that aren't meteorites. It's amazing, it's actually. True. But there there's a terrific book about uh-huh. micrometeorites called Hunting for Stars by Michel uh-huh. Moret. Uh-huh. And a French scientist, and I think it's out of print, but it's it's pretty easy to find. And right. and he looked, he examined all the different ways that micrometeorites have been found and collected, and it's it's really fascinating wow. to think that they really are everywhere. These these tiny particles fall all the time, and you do need a microscope to identify them properly because they're very tiny. Yeah. So. I, if you do go up and clean out your gutters, you're going to find a lot of stuff that sticks to your magnet. <laughs> right. And don't just assume that all of them are meteorites. But <laughs> if you have a powerful microscope, it's a fun it's a fun project. Yeah. And you are looking for little tiny pieces that are nose cone shaped. They they still, even though they're tiny, they oh. tend to still ablate into oh, these wow. marvelous shapes sometimes. That's fascinating. I, I know... Uh- I mean, I could talk to you about this for, for days, man, but I know, you know, your time's limited Same. here, but I <laughs> I do want to mention something that you and I briefly talked about before we started doing this that I never knew before about the state of North Carolina. Um, this is new to me. I'm going to have to research it and, and figure this out. It's something called the Carolina Bays. What is that exactly? Oh, now you're getting onto one of my favorite subjects. All right. So this is one of the great science mysteries of North America or the world. And I really wanted to do a Meteorite Men episode about this, but it was, mm, well, how, how, how shall I put this? It it was very important to the network 
mm-hmm. that we find meteorites in every episode. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. because viewers like it when there's a payoff, I, I understand. Yeah. I feel the same way when I watch Gold Rush. I really want them right. to find big right. nuggets at the end of every episode. Mm-hmm. And actually, Christo Doyle, who produced Gold Rush, was our, our producer at Science Channel. So so I, I, I do get it. But yeah. I'm also very much about the science and the experience. And so I did suggest some episodes that were that were more research-based where we weren't going to find anything. And Carolina Bays was one of them. And I'm still determined to do a show about Carolina Bays. So I will let you know uh, if and when that happens. So in, in a nutshell, on the eastern seaboard, in, in large part in North Carolina and South Carolina, there are thousands and thousands of oval-shaped depressions of wow. widely varying sizes. Yeah. And yet they all have approximately the same proportions mm-hmm. and at the at the far end at the southerly end there is frequently a deposition of sand but only at the southern end <laughs> and there are numerous theories uh, trying that try to explain how these happen now they're they're ancient they're they they there are many although there's even debate about the age but they're they're many thousands of years old for a long time, it was thought that they were the result of some sort of meteorite impact. Right. The trouble with that is how would they all have the same aspect? They all have this very, very consistent oval shape. Right. Yeah. One of the theories, I don't have an, I don't, I'm not going to, Ren, I can't tell you what the answer is. I wish I could. Yeah. I'm, I'm not one of these people that goes, yes, I support theory c about the carolina base <laughs> right. i'm interested in everything to do with the carolina yeah, exactly base. some of them are so big they have their own ecosystem some of them are oh, lakes wow. some of them are very small some of them are very very visible some have been eroded by farming but if you go online and do a search for carolina bays you will be uh-huh. amazed when you see some of these aerial photos are they and more so along they, they the, were, the coast sorry, go, or is it uh, is it more along the coast or inland or are they found well, all over the place fairly close to the coast but, okay. but they are but they are spread they are spread around uh, yeah, quite a bit. Yeah. And and in fact, they go all the way down to Florida, but they oh, are wow. most prevalent in North and South Carolina, wow. where there, there are thousands of them. Yeah. So I do think it is, it is possible or even likely that their origin is linked to a meteorite impact. So they they were first discovered in the 1930s, if yeah. I remember my date correctly, by by aircraft that was flying oh, overhead. Wow. It's yeah. not very easy to see them from the ground. Mm-hmm. You would stand in a big one and you would go, "Oh, this is just a lake," and you would stand yeah. in a small one and you you might you might not see it. So one of the theories that I think has some real merit, although it's very strange is there was an enormous meteorite impact mm-hmm. in Canada during oh. the last ice age. Right. And the force of this impact blasted thousands of pieces of ice uh-huh. out onto the continent. Wow. And that as these pieces of ice melted, the receding water and the the attendant erosional processes formed the base. Right, right. So that is that is one theory. Huh. It's not it's not universally accepted. But yeah. that's perhaps the one that rings the most true to me. And right. there are about a half a million total of, of oh, these wow. bays. And 
the on Atlantic coastal plain. And strangely, really strangely, they're aligned as well. They're, oh, wow. They all point the same way. So huh. they almost look like scales, like scales on a lizard or, or oh, a fish. Wow. But it's the variety of size combined with the uniform shape and the uniform orientation that is really fascinating. So uh, current date is thought to be around 24 to 29,000 years. Oh, wow. Or more. But that's, that's one. That's one theory. So doubtless some closer to uh, near you m mostly closer to the plane but right. this is this is something i i really i really want to go and do a show about wow. this and i, I want to spend some time there and oh. it would there are some there are some things that you could look for that might help solve the mystery and it, it's quite hotly contested between the different camps but i thought you would appreciate oh absolutely because it is one of the great geological geographical mysteries it's in it's in your area and it does i think m many or most scientists would say it, it may have something to do with meteorite impact i love it this yeah i've never heard of this before i'm looking at photos right now of it and uh this is pretty wild looking this is isn't it isn't it amazing yeah. have you seen you see that those color images wow, yeah, of the yeah. of the overlapping ovals and in some cases you there are multiple bays right on top of each other which really does look like the result of something falling if you've got oh. one on top of another it's it's it looks to me like something that, that was somehow caused by something falling out of the sky Wow. You know, and, and now that I'm thinking about this, um, I used to live in Wilmington, North Carolina, which is Oh, uh, I coast. love Wilmington. Yeah. One of my best Cape friends Fair lives River. there. What a great town. There's a, a lake somewhere near there that I've been to. Uh, I think it's called White Lake. Uh, it's perfect, perfectly circular. And I always wondered if that might have been some kind of prehistoric meteor crater. Uh, that filled up. But I mean, what I'm looking at here with these Carolina bays, I mean, it, it's looking like uh, that could be one of those now that I'm, I'm seeing this. Oh, could well be. Huh. And for anyone uh, who's, who's interested there, there's, oh, there are a wealth of videos on YouTube about this. There are several books that have been published, but if you just do a search for Carolina bays online, you'll see there's a Wikipedia entry with oh, yeah. some fascinating aerial photographs. You, you will look at those photos and you will go, there's something going on here. Oh, I yeah. don't know what it is, oh, yeah. but there is some strange phenomenon that has occurred that we have not yet been able to, to explain in a way that satisfies everyone or even actually hardly anyone wow, it's, that is uh, so it wild. remains a great mystery maybe to be solved in our lifetimes hey you never know you never know they found the titanic <laughs> yes well and this is another example of of things being discovered by accident uh, as, That's right. as we were talking about meteorites coming to light coming to yeah. light as a result of meteorite men this wow. was some guys were flying in a plane they were they were working on something completely unrelated and they we're taking aerial photographs. And when they looked at the photographs, they go, what are all these strange oval shaped depressions wow. here? That's Sounds amazing. like a job for Sherlock. Yes. Holmes. Yes. Yes. I'm no, I'm on it. I'm going to look into Good. this. <laughs> well, listen, Ren, I'm telling you that if we come out and do a show, you're going to get an invitation to oh, come yes. along and, uh, 
and and hike some of those bays with us and i'm i'm sure you i'm sure you know some interesting characters in in the carolinas that we could talk to absolutely 100% i will be there no doubt <laughs> great <laughs> jeff it has been a pleasure talking to you it's been a real honor i really appreciate you taking the time to do this and thank you again to to melissa for putting some time on your schedule and i really hope that uh, we can do this again sometime soon i would love it it has been a great pleasure you're a wonderful host and Thank you. call me anytime. I, I I would love to continue this discussion. Absolutely. Maybe, maybe after we have more. some more data on the bays for you or, or after there the next go. lunar meteorites being found. Let's definitely keep in touch for sure. I look forward to it. Thank you, Ren. Meteorite man, Jeff Notkin, everybody. If this has uh, got you a little curious as well, there's a couple things you can do. Jeff has a book out called How to Find Treasure from Space, the expert guide to meteorite hunting. You ought to check it out and read it. It's fascinating. It comes a lot of the stuff we talked about here today, uh, but goes in a lot more depth, so you should check that out. So in the, the podcast description here for this episode, you'll see a link there where you can order the book. Also, his company, aerolite.org, A-E-R-O-L-I-T-E. If you're interested in meteorite collecting and this is a fascinating topic to you and you want to own one, uh, you can buy them from his store. So check that out, aerolite.org. And, of course, it goes without saying, check out the TV show, Meteorite Men. In the description here on the podcast episode, I'm also putting a link where you can watch the first episode of Meteorite Men and then kind of go from there. It's a fascinating show. Some of the things that they find and the ways they go about it will blow your mind, but these things are worth tons of money. And some of these space rocks that they have pulled out of the ground are worth more than you probably think they are. So check that out. Meteorite Men is the TV show. Click on the link in the description, and you can watch the very first episode where they're hanging out in Kansas and pulling giant rocks out of the ground full of these space gemstones. That's it for the Phantom Radio Podcast on RadioCharlotte.com. I'm Ren. If you want to reach out to me, the email address, Ren, R-E-N-N, at RadioCharlotte.com. Or you can call the TAN line, the listener voicemail, and leave a message, 704-TAN-LINE, 704-826-5463. But you guys have a great night. Be safe, be well, and I'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for listening worldwide. Phantom Radio.